This is Jeff from Jerome's Dream. Hey, this is Eric from Jerome's Dream. And you're listening to The New Scene. I can see your soul at the edges of your eyes. It's corrosive, like acid. There's a shadow on you, son. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the new scene. This is Keith and Tommy, and we are back with another classic episode of a classic show that you all know and love. And folks, we are completing the California Takeover trifecta tonight with Daryl Taberski of Snapcase. Folks, this is a big one. We're looking forward to it. We're so happy that we've gotten to speak to Strife and Earth Crisis. And now Snapcase, and it's going to be great. I love it. I've, Snapcase is one of those bands that had such a unique sound that I'm so excited to just talk to them about how that came about. Like I'm really excited to hear the evolution of like the sound of them. Exactly. And they didn't fit the Victory prototype. Wait, explain. Victory was like a lot of really tough sounding bands. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, no, and they I didn't. didn't yeah. I didn't listen to a lot of that stuff back then because I was so terrified of everybody who went to the show <laughs> and snap, you know, Snapcase is amazing and has great mosh parts and all that stuff, but they were more in the realm of like post hardcore quicksand helmet, that kind of stuff. Yes. So I'm interested in exploring that angle with Daryl and yeah. Asking about everything. We will cover it all. Tommy. Can we please address the snare sound? Oh, of course. <laughs> it's like question number one, not yeah. how are you? How did you guys, how did you decide on the piccolo snare? <laughs> Daryl, do you realize that snare sound is famous? <laughs> yeah, we're going we're gonna to cover it all. We're very excited. And uh, what's going on, Tommy? How are you? Uh, today, I'm a little stressed out. We had a bunch of teachers out because um, of COVID symptoms. So there's a lot of coverage. So it's like, you know, we don't have we don't hire substitute teachers, so I was covering a lot of classes. So I actually didn't get a break today, except for about twenty minutes when the kids went to lunch. And didn't you have four and a half hours of parent teacher conferences the other day? Yeah, that was actually really stressful. In that it's easier to do parent teacher conferences at school, but with COVID protocols, you are not allowed to have visitors in the building. So I had to do them all virtually, which meant I also had to send out eighteen separate. Google Meet links, and I had to put them all on the calendar. There were some kids that needed to meet with the principal that also had to be added to the calendar. It was just uh, not my, um, that's not my normal kind of way of running my actual day. Uh, I'm not used to being on the computer for that long, and I'm not used to uh, running meetings like that. So it's interesting how different we are. If I have four calls in a day, I have to like go lay down for an hour afterwards, you know? <laughs> Human interaction takes a lot out of me, and then I have to recharge. Well, a lot of it's just kind of like standard. Like, all right, here's your your student's report card. Um, here are some of the issues I'm seeing from some of the teachers. Would you like me to set up a conference with any of the other teachers so you can speak with them directly? Um, yeah. That's pretty much it. So they're you know they're only about ten or fifteen minutes long. People ask a couple questions, and then it's really done. But um, we really we only had like a five hour window, six hour window to put them into. So it's really hard to text somebody and be like, hey, between two and seven on Thursday, I need you to call me. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's really a pain in the butt. That's a pretty big window. 
It is. And it's nice because it allows a lot of people that, you know, have nighttime shifts to be like, yeah, I'll take the two o'clock one. And then they get done really early or people that do get out of work at, you know, say six or six thirty, they're still able to do, you know, an actual parent teacher conference and talk with me and talk about behavior issues or anything like that. So the important question here is, are you taking the promotion? Um, it has not been formally offered to me without getting into really, uh, like personal details. Our principal has been out for a little bit. Um, I suspect with some little bit of the, the Rona. So we haven't seen her in about two weeks, but, uh, uh, if it is offered to me, I will most likely be accepting it. I really have to, I have to spend time shadowing the guy who does the job now to really see what it entails. Yes. Uh, but that's probably not going to happen until like late December, like after Christmas break. Like that's when we'll really start to kind of like get into that because it's things are very hectic right now. Thanksgiving break is coming up next week. But yeah, enough about me in school. That's a boring thing. How are you? Me? Well, I'm good. I'm good. There's not too much going on. I did go to a show over the weekend, Tommy. What'd you see? And I'm going to talk about that in a second. But before I do that, folks. We have a special giveaway for this episode. We have in our hands, listen, here it is right here. We have in our hands a return of the California Takeover LP. And that's not actually the record I'm crinkling. I'm just doing that for effect. (laughs) To you collectors out there, it will be in pristine condition. Folks, this record is sold out. You cannot get it unless you scour and troll away on eBay like Tommy Buying used records and no, I don't buy records on there. Secondhand California Takeover records, and you don't want to do that, folks. We have a brand new Return of the California Takeover LP to give away to a lucky listener. So check back in during segment three, and we'll tell you how to do it. Now, as far as me, I'm good. Really, the only thing I did was the show. Tommy Gates played a gig with Bent Knee, and the world is a beautiful place. And I am no longer afraid to die. And I went to the gig. It was at this place called Elsewhere, also in Bushwick. See, Tommy, all the music in Brooklyn is getting pushed to Bushwick, apparently. Now, I've been to this venue before. I saw This Will Destroy You there. Okay. But they must have changed it or moved the stage or built a higher stage. I don't know. I, it just I went looked in, different? Yeah. Okay. I didn't recognize the inside at all. Okay. At all. So something changed. Now, the show itself, Gates, was awesome. They played a excellent career-spanning set. They played two new songs, one of those being Where to Begin. I really wanted to see that live, and I got to. Gates are always excellent live. A-plus, would see again. After Gates was Bent Knee. This was an interesting band. It's like, it's really upbeat. I don't even know how to describe it. It's pop, emo, and one song almost sounded like heavy. They have like almost like trap breaks in, with synth in some songs and cello. And there was a lot of different elements going on. And I liked what they were doing. The crowd was really into it. It was really upbeat, fun music. And never, never heard that band before this show. They were direct support for the world. And then, Tommy, the world is a beautiful place. And I am no longer afraid to die. Have you heard this band before? I actually haven't. I've heard the name before. I actually have heard the name through Kevin Die, but I actually have never listened to them. Yeah, you would like it. It's good emo, post-hardcore type music. Not too far from Gates. Okay. I've heard them on record before, but I've never seen them. And I thought it was great. All around great show. 
You know, Tommy, it's weird going to shows by myself (laughs) (laughs) And, and just kind of in general sometimes. Like, I feel like an alien observing human behavior. You know what I mean? I yeah. I actually uh Vadim had texted us about seeing Poison the Well. Yeah. And I, I texted Vadim uh not in that group chat afterwards and I was like, Can you give me a heads up on who's going so I don't have to go by myself? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't want to go by myself. It's so weird. I just sat I just kinda hid in the corner and watched the bands and then I left. And that's what I like to do. But Dude, shows are so much more fun when you, there's like a bunch of friends there. Oh, I'm sure. It's like, I think if I don't, I get the, that feeling when I'm by myself at shows, even if I'm with other people and I end up by myself for a little bit, I feel awkward. I really yeah. feel like I don't know what to do with my hands. Do I cross them? Do I put them in my pockets? Do I look like that guy who's angry to be there? Like, I'm very self-conscious. I'm so happy to hear you say that because... I feel the same way. Like I'm crossing my arms and then I'm like, no, I don't want to be that guy. So then I put them in my pockets and then I realize I'm crossing them again. And I'm like, no, stop. And then I'm like leaning sideways because I'm so tall and I don't want to stand. And I'm like, no, stand up. You look weird. And then my shoulders are hunched. And I'm like, no, you, dude, it's just like, there's no comfortable way to do anything. I, uh, did you ever see that there's an old Louis CK bit where he talks about how he, he hasn't smoked weed in a long time and he smokes weed with these kids and it's really strong. So he doesn't know how to act like a normal person. So he's literally like, I'm trying to make eye contact with people, but I feel like I'm staring too long. So he's like, I'm literally in my head looking at someone and going five, four, three, two. Okay. Look at the next person. He's like, I'm pretending. He's like, I'm feeling like I'm pretending to be a regular person and not acting like I'm incredibly high. I was like, that's, I I've been in that situation and not been high. I've just been incredibly awkward <laughs> in the moment and be like, how do I pretend to be normal at this time? Yeah, that's what it feels like, but I'm glad I went. The show was good. The venue is good and I'm good, Tommy. I'm really I'm glad good. to hear that. Yeah. By the time you hear this folks, our Twitch channel will have debuted. Ooh. You will have watched me play video games while we chat together, and you can ask questions about the game or the podcast or anything else, and it's going to be exciting. I Actually, uh, are you going to tell them what you're going to play or no? Yeah. Yeah. This okay. By the time they hear this, it will have already happened. So, folks, you have watched me grind away a Contra for NES trying to get a deathless run. And maybe I did it and maybe I didn't. I can't see into the future, but I hope I did. I have faith in you. Yes. Yes, I can do it, Tommy. I can do it. Well, you did it when you were a kid. Yeah. You know, it's funny because there's like a week delay in in us recording and putting up the show. I I have to do overdubs a lot of time because I forget stuff or I mess something up. Mm -hmm. And I always think of uh, the Simpsons when they go to Camp Krusty. <laughs> Mr. Black. Yeah. Hello, this is Mr. Black. <laughs> we are very happy to be with Mr. Black. <laughs> oh God. Good times. These Gucci watches have to be on the streets of Saigon by Friday. <laughs> well, folks, that's it for segment one. Once again, we have a return of the California Takeover LP to give away in segment three. So check in to see how to acquire it. It's going to be very exciting. But folks, now we're going to talk to Daryl Taberski of Snapcase. Enjoy. All right, folks, we're here now with Daryl Taberski. Daryl, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, guys. It's nice to be here. We're very excited that you're here, Daryl. 
you know, we've got the return of the California Takeover record coming out. You've got a rich history with Snapcase, and we want to cover all that. But first, Daryl, I have to ask, how are you doing today? I'm doing better now. I've been looking forward to this interview, but I had kind of a crazy day. So, you know, it's a Monday. I'll be honest, you know, I usually like I go to like a default answer when people say, how are you doing? And you just say good, you know, but I'm actually, today was not really that good. It was a little bit, I I, uh, I, I supervise a number of people at my job and I, I, I work kind of a corporate job and uh, people are stressing me out today. So I'm like psyched to just kind of like be here with you guys talking hardcore. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I work a very corporate job where I do a lot of... Uh... It's almost like hosting a podcast. I schedule calls with tons of people, and I have to coordinate everything and collect information, and it's very stressful. It's just another podcast, basically, but it can be very stressful. <laughs> sure. Daryl, what's your job? What, what kind of work do you do? So um, by trade, I'm a social worker. I, I'm a master's level social worker, and out of school, I worked at a psychiatric hospital, and I was uh, you know, an inpatient psychiatric counselor. But quickly ended up in management, and um, and then shortly after that became a director at the hospital. And I did everything from you know training all of the staff from nurses, counselors, social workers, doctors, all the way down, all the way including our uh, maintenance staff and our kitchen staff on how to diffuse you know crisis intervention things like that. Um, but I did marketing for them. I ran leadership meetings. I mean, it was endless and. You know, and I also was involved in some pretty heavy, you know, psychiatric crisis interventions, you know, with, with patients. Um, but that's one of my passions. And uh, but now I, I, I left there and I, I work a really like a more boring version of that. I, I'm in management for a national insurance company for health insurance, but my department handles all the behavioral health. So substance use disorders and mental health how long have you been in that line of work? Uh, since 2006. So do you like that better than what you were doing at the hospital before? Because it sounds like the hospital work that you were doing before can take a toll. I mean, you're not just going into work and moving stuff around and messing around with spreadsheets. There's <laughs> there's lives at stake. So you're absolutely right. So when I said 2006, I've been in the social work field since 2006. And uh, I worked at the, at the hospital for a good 12 years. So I've only been in the insurance game for like, you know, three or four years now, but, um, I'm working from home and right now, and I, I like that. And, um, I have some great people on my team in general. I work with some great people and the organization I work for is a lot stronger and it's a better company to, to have a job at than the hospital I worked at. So those things are good, but the nature of the work, I mean, you know, it was a little bit more special, uh, to work direct care with people and, and see direct results in the hospital setting. Well, the most important question, does the insurance gig pay more? <laughs> uh, it does. There yeah. you go. They take care of you. Um, and, you know, and I don't have to, at the end of the day, I don't have to worry that someone might die by suicide or something that night, which was, you know, you kind of had that a lot when you worked in the hospital. Yeah, I would have, I actually, I was going to say, I might have to pick your ear after this a little bit, Daryl. I'm a middle school math teacher in Trent, New Jersey, and we are at a severe lack of behavioral analysts and uh, counselors. And we have a lot of kids that have undergone some serious trauma in the last 18 to 20 months. And uh, we're having real issues finding qualified mental health people. Sure. 
Sure, I understand. My wife is a, a high school social worker, so I know what that situation's like too. Yeah, Daryl, would you be interested in moving to Trenton, New Jersey, and <laughs> working with Tommy at his school? <laughs> well, the, you know the the scene is thriving over there. It's always good. You know, the, the music scene anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've got the trifecta, Philadelphia, New Jersey, New York, D.C., just down south, Baltimore. It's all here. You know, you've been around yeah. more than us. I like that area. I have some friends that live in uh, in New Jersey, too. Yeah. So, so uh, you grew up in Buffalo, yes? I did. I grew up here in Buffalo. Um, been here my whole life. And, uh, you know, this is where most of Snapcase is from. Not all of the guys, but most of them. How do you like it? You must still like it if you live there still, right? I love it. So I'm really a fan of old, older cities, um, cities that have history. You know, I, I kind of like the Northeast in general for that reason. It's it's strange. I've kind of like um, become more of a fan of the Four Seasons. I know that you guys, when you're interviewing Scott from Earth Crisis, he was saying, you know, he was really kind of happy to move away from the the brutal winters of Syracuse. But um, the only issue with the winter is how long they are. I don't mind the severity of the winter or or winter itself. It's just that when it carries on too far into the spring, usually (laughs) enough is enough. Yeah, when you're walking outside in April and there's still two and a half feet of snow, you're like, okay, I'm kind of over this. So tell us about your musical history. Have you always been a big fan of music? I have. Um, I I grew up in, in a... You know, kind of a um, somewhat conservative family, a suburban family. Um, so, you know, my parents, my my family is Polish. My father listened to a lot of polka music. My mother didn't listen to um, music that I would think was very cool. <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't have, like, I didn't grow up in a house where, like, my parents were, like, you know, listening to the Beatles and, you know, t- turning me on to, like, cool music. You know, it was like... I was all about the rebellion factor when it came to music, you know, like as soon as I discovered Iron Maiden and Ozzy and my mother hated it, the more I loved it. And I was just like, yes, this is where it's at. <laughs> yes. I'm all about this. You know, um, some of my older cousins were, were guitar players and yeah, right away. Like I was all about, you know, as soon as I, I could, you know, get an Ozzy poster on the wall and whatever would that's why I actually have a hard time with these days when kids are like really like kids are into um, <laughs> like country music because their parents like country music and they're like, oh, we go to the country music concerts together. Like, I just don't relate to that. I'm just like, no, you're so, if your parents like soft music, you're supposed to like really obnoxious music. <laughs> you know, I'm so happy to hear you say that because I always tell this story in eighth grade, our eighth grade graduation party, this kid threw a pool party and everyone's like, Oh, let's listen to the Beatles. Oh, let's listen to the Doors. And I was like, "Where am I? Like <laughs> for twelve? I mean, what, like who are you people? I just, I just didn't understand it, and I still don't. Yeah, I was into anything that was provocative, either that my parents didn't want me to listen to, or people my age would think I was a freak for listening to. You know, so I, I really liked Corn <laughs> and Marilyn Manson was big at the time. Anything like that that was like provocative, I was into. Yeah. And I get that. You know, I, my mother did come around and she realized, you know, like she, it would be better to kind of, um, play along rather than, you know, combat what I was into. So I, I, I remember, and, and this is a little embarrassing to admit, but the first piece of music I got to buy for myself was an eight track. Now, oh, nice. Nice. <laughs> 
Now, eight tracks were actually like outdated already, but my parents were like so old fashioned that my father was not going to up, you know, he didn't want a record player and he definitely didn't want a cassette player yet. He's like, we've got something that plays music. That's what you listen to. So (laughs) I think my mother let me get ACDC Highway to Hell out of like the bargain bin at the grocery store because it was on eight track and nobody wanted eight tracks anymore. So they were like a buck or something. So she was like, you could pick it out. So, I mean, that was my first piece of music that I owned like for myself. And I just, it was, that's an amazing album to this date. So yeah, that's a great first record to have. Yeah. Tell us about discovering hardcore punk rock. What was your entry point? So, you know, I, I, let me, the next step was, you know, my parents also belonged to Columbia house. So, right. So you could, you know, pick, cassettes or whatever you know at this point we so i did at this point get a boom box for my room and and the reason i'm telling you this is because the, the first two cassettes i picked out were really different because i didn't know what i liked and i didn't know what i was going to be into i know i just wanted something that you didn't hear on the radio so i picked um the cures the cure boys don't cry and i picked um, metallica master of puppets and so different and i i just but that was all I had. And I loved those two albums, you know, and I just, I I just loved those records. And um, the reason I tell you this is because I've always sort of struggled as far as like finding the identity, musical identity of like, where does, where do I fit? Where does this fit? Where does Snapcase fit? Because this theme kind of carried on through all of it, you know, where I started out with these two kind of like polar opposite albums um, and then growing up in Buffalo, now Buffalo doesn't have a lot of famous musicians, but like early on, Rick James came from Buffalo. And then, you know, the Goo Goo Dolls came from Buffalo and Cannibal Corpse came from Buffalo. And Cannibal Corpse and the Goo Goo Dolls in a small city like Buffalo, they were actually friends. And they hung out at the same same club, downtown Buffalo, the Continental. So it's it's just a, a wild thing about Buffalo, you know, and Weren't they on the same label too for a while? I think the first Goo Goo Dolls record came out on On Metal Blade. Blade, Yeah, Yeah. it was. So in those days, Buffalo um, State College had an amazing radio station. They still do, but they had a hardcore radio show on Thursday nights. It was punk hardcore. And that was the thing. My friends and I, you know, we would, you know, living in the suburbs, you know, you had to kind of like put tinfoil on your antenna and connected to like the metal screen on the window, you know, so you could get the station in and, and it went way too late for me. Cause I had to get up early for school, but I used to just press record. And then when the tape would like get to the end, it would pop and it would wake me up and I'd flip it over in my sleep and hit recording. And then the next day I was just so excited, you know, to go to school and listen to like what was on the radio show the night before. And, um, this is where I learned all about like everything from black flag to New York hardcore um, misfits, dead Kennedys, all of that stuff, you know, that just like, Oh my God, it just hit me. And, and then I started hearing about shows. And so I started going to shows. And I think the first show I went to was SNFU, who was an amazing band from Canada. And, um, and then my second show was the bad brains. Oh, nice. And, uh, an early incarnation of zero tolerance. They played that show. They were called third man in, um, or it might have been New Balance. So those those two bands were basically zero tolerance before they became zero tolerance. And then the Goo Goo Dolls actually popped on right before the Bad Brains, and they played a set too. Were they actually a heavy band before that big single, or were they just like more alternative? Because people say like, oh, they were a metal band, but but were they like really a metal band? 
No, they weren't metal. They were like an obnoxious punk band. And in fact, they were buddies with um early version of uh, Sam I Am. And I think they even played tour together with Sam I Am. Oh, wow. The Bad Brain show was like, that, that show just was like earth shattering to me. It just blew my mind. You know, the Bad Brains, there's never been a band like them um, ever again. And, but when, when that early version of Zero Tolerance played, they were a straight edge band and the hardcore band. And I remember they get up on stage and they're doing their fast beat hardcore with the mosh parts. And they, they looked like youth of today, even though they weren't youth of today, but they were Buffalo's version of youth of today. And I remember some guy in the crowd with a Mohawk was like straight edge sucks. And uh, the singer literally like walked right up to the front of the stage, got right up to the guy's face and was like, shut up. And like, I was like, well, these guys are crazy, you know? And, uh, I, I just went home like thinking like, what is this straight edge hardcore all about? You know, like, crazy so that's where that kind of started did you get into that were you part of straight edge is that that something that appealed to you it was and um you know uh i was kind of i was so young that i wasn't really like kind of into drinking anyway and I, i grew up in such a conservative family and you know i only had so much freedom um in fact i got grounded the night of that bad brain show because my father said to be outside at a certain time and it went a little late and i didn't come out on time but but yes, I gravitated to the straight edge right away. And I think, you know, probably either the next show or within the next few shows after that, I saw Youth of Today. Ray was just so compelling on stage and just made such an impression that um, I think I liked everything about the movement. And I thought that being straight edge was actually very punk rock because the mainstream in my school, everybody was into partying. And if you wanted to fit in, well, you partied, you know, you drank, you'd smoke pot. But like, if you were kind of more rebellious, you kind of rebelled against it. So I think I kind of gravitated to that at that point. It's interesting. When I was younger, those, I guess you would call them fringe movements were were appealing to me. I don't know anything that was different. I remember being really into the idea of Krishna, like Krishna core, that thing, because I was big into 108 and the whole, you know, no no eating meat and no drinking and no gambling and all that stuff. I, I didn't have the willpower to actually not do any of that stuff, but it just, the movement seemed appealing, the different lifestyles. No, I think that's what a lot of us are looking for is that we, you know, like Daryl, I had a similar upbringing with, you know, I, I had an Italian mother and an Irish father, very conservative. I went to an all boys private Catholic school. I was looking for something that was not what everybody else was doing. And punk and straight edge became those first things for me. It was like, this is different than everybody else. And I like this. Like that was what I latched onto was it wasn't what everybody else was doing. And I think there's still a large part of hardcore is that we look for something different. And I think that's a, a huge part of what we look for. Right. And that's, that's sort of the first step of it. And, you know, I'd like to, you know, get into that a little bit. Um, but you know, that, looking for it is different but then again you're kind of looking for an identity so like if you grow up in in sort of a conservative suburban family you know all you've really known your whole life is like your suburb and your family and so when you start to branch out from that it's really interesting and really you know eye opening and you know sometimes you're going to rebel against your your family a bit and you're going to have conflicts with the internal conflicts about that 
And that's always been really interesting to me, you know, like this, like, well, who am I? But then you realize now I'm trying to just be, become something that maybe I'm not. So you're, you're trying too hard. So maybe straight edge appeals to me because it's like something bigger than me where like, there's all these people and it kind of tells me what I'm going to be or what I'm going to, how I'm going to dress and what I'm going to believe and, you know, things like that. And, you know, through the progression of being on tour or being in, in a band or going to shows even in general, you know, you, you start learning as you get older and mature, you have to kind of rebel against that internally as well, you know? And so the idea of like straight edge and my crew became less attractive the older I got. Right. Because as you're progressing in age, you're figuring out who you are. It's less about, you know, I need to do what everybody else is doing and more about, well, what do I like? What do I think? How do I want to appear? And I, I did that early on too. I was like rebelling against rebelling. You know, I was like hanging out with all hardcore kids and going to hardcore shows, but I, I would wear like different clothes because I'm like, I don't want to look like everybody else. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, and kind of like one of you mentioned, I, I went to an all boy, uh, all boys Catholic school and uh, high school. And I remember like there was only a few kids there that were into what I was into um, skateboarding and, and hardcore and punk rock. My closest friends at school weren't, you know, they were the kind of guys that like, Oh, we're going to go over to Joe's house after school and like smoke a joint and watch the wall, you know? <laughs> and I'd be like, well, I guess I'm going with you guys. Cause you're my friends and this, what, you know, where we're going, but I would just like start to like resent this whole thing inside. Like, and I just like, God, I hate this. I, I don't even want to be here. I don't want to go to this school anymore. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I want to hang out with my like, non-Catholic school friends that are into punk rock and hardcore, you know, like, I don't want to be here anymore. Not to mention smoking weed and watching the wall just sounds like an awful time. I mean, <laughs> like, all due respect to Pink Floyd and everything, but it's it's just not for me. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. So when did you decide you wanted to start playing music? How did you do it? When I think about that, I, I think about the next place where I started to go to see shows. And most bands or anyone you, you know, you listen to an interview with that's from Buffalo, they talk about Zero Tolerance, the band, um, because they were like a huge influence on all of us. And they were sort of the, the foundation of the scene, so to speak, but also the River Rock Cafe. So that was the venue that we had. That was our all ages club that was, became like the mainstay. And I would say it started probably around 1988, 89, right in there. And I was thinking about this earlier today, and I thought this would be kind of an interesting thing to bring up. The shows that I was going to, so like, you know, I I did go to see the Revelation tour there, and there's just so many great shows where there all the New York bands and all the Boston bands came through. The people that were going to the shows at the River Rock in Buffalo, so Scott Vogel of Terror, he was one of them. He was he never missed a show. He was at every show. He was in every pit. The guys from the Goo Goo Dolls would be there. The guys, uh, the bass player from Cannibal Corpse went to all the hardcore shows, including Youth of Today. He was always hanging out. Also in the scene was Garrett Klon, who became the singer of Texas is the Reason. Right. He's from Buffalo. Right. He's another Buffalo guy. And then, you know, um, of course, the Snapcase guys. And then Dennis, the drummer of Earth Crisis, he's a Buffalo guy. So he was there also. I was just thinking like, wow, this is really incredible that all of us were kind of like at the same place at the same time. And, and um, it goes even further than that because 
Um, we had an, a drummer in one of our early um, lineups, uh, Jason Corcunas, and he was at all these shows. And he now plays in uh, the Hot Snakes, and he's been in so many bands. He's worth looking up. And another guy is Johnny Chow, who played in um, – he after he moved out of Buffalo, he played in some New York bands, but then he moved to Brazil and was in Cavalier Conspiracy, and he's now in, been in Stone Sour ever since that band started. Um, so he's another guy from the River Rock Cafe hardcore scene, you know, like, so it's quite an incredible thing that was going on there at that time. Wow. What a collection of people. Yeah. And I, I guess that ties into, you had asked me, you know, how did I decide I wanted to be into a, in a band? Well, our local scene was so strong and I would see these local bands play in Zero Tolerance. There were some other ones and the shows were so consistent and so not only would I get to see like a great New York band come through, but I'd see one or two Buffalo bands play. And, you know, you're getting to a point where some of these guys are the people that you were moshing with in the pit like just two months ago. And all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, I could do that too. You know, I would love to do that. My cousin Scott was playing guitar, but he was not into punk and hardcore. He was just like a few years younger and he was learning like some really lame rock music. like, <laughs> And um, I remember I got in trouble because I, I kind of got him into some, uh, I think the first band I got him into was The Descendants. And uh, my uncle came home and heard him like blasting like some vulgar Descendants song and was like, did, did your cousin Daryl get you into this? You know, and, <laughs> <laughs> but, but Scott ended up becoming the guitar player of Snapcase and, you know, our early, one of our early uh, versions of Snapcase. And he was, he was, big part of Snapcase for a long time. Um, so he and a couple of my friends, we, we decided to start the band. I played bass because I really didn't know how to play an instrument. And that's sort of like the default thing that happens in a punk band. Right. But, you know, I was also kind of like um, always like one of the more motivated people in the band to kind of like make something of it. What did you do to make something of it? What steps did you take? And I, I always really respect when I don't know, people 16, 17, 18 years old can pull these bands together and start playing shows and do all this stuff because I just I just couldn't do it. Well, I think a big part of it is right place at the right time. You know, you have a budding scene. You have like, you know, the the movement within the hardcore scene was just like starting to blow up at that time. Our scene was just, a, it was kind of a um, an approachable scene. The guys that were doing the shows, you could walk up to them at the show and say, Hey, can I give you my demo? You know, and the guy was this guy, Brian Foister, and he was like, he was the guy. He brought all these great shows. And so he's like, Yeah, I liked your demo. You know, I'll put you on the, you guys want to play with Uniform Choice next month? <laughs> you know, <it's> like, <laughs> I mean, that's how it was back then, you know, like, like, oh my God, you know, we're playing with Uniform Choice, you know? So it was stuff like that, you know, and, and similar to what Andrew from Strife said in his interview with you guys and then Scott from Earth Crisis, you know early versions of the band, you know, we didn't know what we wanted to be. I, I remember we were learning cover songs and we'd like play one social distortion song off of mommy's little monster. And we'd play, um, a minor threat song and we'd probably cover like a seven second song or something like that, you know, but you know, we were sort of punk. We were sort of like hardcore, New York hardcore, but we really didn't know what we were doing. You know, we just having fun at that point. We wanted to mosh and <laughs> jump around. How does it start to cycle into what became Snapcase? So I think we we played a lot of shows and we were just like very like instantly dedicated. Like we're we're just gonna like focus on like 
on making better songs and and playing cons- shows consistently and upping our game on stage. You know, I think I ripped off some. Uh, I think it was like an early. So Rob, that's sang Rob Fish that sang for uh, One Away and Resurrection. Uh, his early band was called Release. I think they played Buffalo. We stole their logo, which was actually like, I think like a, a Marvel character or something, Moon Knight. And we took this character, we like put X's on his hand and we made like, we started selling the shirts. And like, I think I screen printed them. I learned how to do screen printing and I made them in my parents' basement kind of a thing. And um, I don't know, people just started to pay attention and people started moshing when we play and singing the songs. And it just... We never looked back. We just kind of kept practicing harder and working our part-time jobs harder to buy gear and step it up and step it up. And Zero Tolerance was like, they were always like the Buffalo band that seemed like they should have been as big or bigger than the the headlining bands from New York that were playing. And that was, whatever they did, we all, all wanted to do, you know, like, so whether it was buying better amps or, you know, having more technical drumming or you know, or just, we started all getting into more into metal. And, um, I remember I would go to see a punk show. I'd go see a hardcore show and we were going to see like obituary and morbid angel and things like that at the same time. I mean, we were into all of this, everything that was underground. So all those different influences were creeping into your own music. Absolutely. So like when, when Snapcase started to develop, we put out a seven inch with, with victory um, and that was when we started to kind of have a little bit more of a following outside of Western New York or outside of our region, which kind of was like Buffalo, Rochester, New York, maybe Syracuse, uh, Erie, Pennsylvania, Cleveland. I mean, I think that was about as far as it went. But then once we were on Victory, um, it started to grow very, very quickly. Um, and then once we put together Looking Glass Self, it just it just went crazy pretty quickly. So you saw bigger shows, bigger reactions pretty quickly after that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, once we played in Chicago to to kind of get signed to Victory, there was no looking back. We came back, Tony said, yeah, I want to do a, do a deal with you guys. And, you know, we drove home from that and we're just like, this is what we're going to do, guys. <laughs> you know, we're, we're like a big touring band now, you know, like, you know, but we were also like all still going to college and... Um, we weren't like the type of band that was like, that, you know, forgot, you know, we, we still kind of like all mostly lived with our parents and things like that, you know? Um, but we were working, we all had part-time jobs and, you know, we didn't really have a choice not to go to college. So we had to kind of like do shows every time there was a break from school, whether it was like a winter break, spring break or the summer. So did you finish college at some point and just start touring all the time? It took me forever to finish college. Um, <laughs> Because we toured and toured and I stopped going to school and then like I'd go back to school and then like I think I remember I was like a semester away from graduating finally with my bachelor's in, in social work and I had changed my major many times and um, I think the band might have even, this is where it gets a little hazy for me, but I think this is roughly around the time when the Deftones came through and we're like, yeah, we want Snapcase to go on the tour with us with quicksand. It's like, it's like, okay, <laughs> everything else in my life can wait, you know, I'm doing this tour, you know? So like, that was like a dream can come true because we were really getting into that Deftone sound at the time. Yep. And, uh, quicksand had long been one of our favorite bands. Yeah. And quicksand were broken up for a little bit. And that was like a, 
return tour for them, wasn't it? I think it was. Yeah, yeah. I really do. They were on a hiatus or something. And then that tour happened around 1998, I think. Yeah. What was it like being on that tour? What was the, what was the vibe? So, you know, kind of similar to what Scott and Earth Crisis was talking about when with you guys when they were on tour with uh, Madball. Like, so we were all straight edge. You know, although Snapcase was never a straight edge band lyrically or we didn't, you know, X up, we didn't promote straight. We never actually wanted to. That was deliberate. You know, we, we liked being straight edge people that were not promoting straight edge for some reason. I mean, we, our message was about individuality and about uh, self-reflection. Our message was all about kind of like self-identity. So we didn't really want to promote something that was like bigger than that, you know, that was sort of like, you know, come, we're a straight edge band, so you should like us because of, we're straight edge and you're like, if that's what you, you know what I mean? We didn't want to tie into that. Um, so being on tour with Quicksand and Deftones, like, there was some heavy partying going on in that tour. There was all kinds of stuff that going on in that tour. Like, whether it was like, you know, drugs and alcohol or porn stars or whatever it was, it was there every night. You know, we were like early to bed, you know, like we didn't, <laughs> we didn't have a tour bus. So we had to kind of like drive ourselves like these long drives to get to the next show. And, you know, we were still going to college, I think at the time. And so like, you know, we had some studying to do at times and, it's just that was our reality. We didn't have the same reality as those other guys. Was it like they could have a manager go and get drugs for them and bring it to them? That's the dream right there, to not even have to do the work. <laughs> I think there was a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, there was... Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't our thing, but we got along with them. We got we got along really well with the Deftones, and we got along really well with Quicksand. I mean, we it was a fun tour. How were those shows? Because that's a pretty big crossover lineup. It was, but um, the shows were were great, and um, it forced us to step up our game uh, to a more professional level, um, to be timely, to be, you know, really sharp for sound checks, to up our game sonically. Um, just the whole organization of the band was kind of like a really quick study on like rock tour one hundred one versus like you know hitting the hardcore circuit. You know, it, it was much different. We learned a lot from every tour we we did. We, we're we're really fortunate to have toured with a lot of great bands and a lot of diverse bands. And I feel like we came came away f- for the better from every single one of those tours because we were kind of open to learning. I think Snapcase stands out in the world of hardcore. One because I would say you're one of the gateway bands that got me into hardcore. So that's a personal thing. But two, the sound was just different, especially from the rest of the Victory roster. Yeah. You know, you had more of a post-hardcore edge, like helmet, quicksand influence type stuff. And I always really liked you guys more because of that. You know, that that's kind of my thing. Yeah. And, and so that's kind of ties into what I mentioned earlier about, you know, I mean, maybe it's a little bit corny, but, you know, the, me starting out with The Cure and Metallica as my first two cassettes and then going to see... Growing up in Buffalo with the Google Dolls and Cannibal Corpse simultaneously, and you know, um, you know, and then our band, we, we listened to all of that, you know, Youth Crew hardcore from New York. We loved it, but then we also loved Agnostic Front. We loved the Chromags. We loved Prong, and then Prong took us to Helmet, and we loved Helmet. We loved Quicksand. We loved Corrosion of Conformity, and you know, we also liked a lot of like some death metal stuff. And not to mention, we also grew up on punk. So 
we kind of were a band that sort of embraced it all. Um, we never knew what we wanted to be. We never were, you know, like there's a lot of bands that are like, oh, we, we just want to sound like uh, Youth Crew, you know, 88 New York Hardcore. You know, that was never us. We loved it all, and we just constantly struggled to find a way to put it together. And there were other bands that, like Quicksand or Verbal Assault, those were bands that were harder to define, and we loved that. That was like what we were all about. Like, how do you develop the sound? Is it just trial and error sitting in the practice space saying like, no, I don't like this. No, try that. Do you have to push it in a different direction? You do. And you have to be open to different things. So my cousin, Scott, that was the guitar player that I mentioned earlier. So in between, after we wrote Looking Glass Self, we were really starting to kind of like develop our own sound, which the next thing that came out was our Steps EP. Now, Scott was listening to, we loved New York hardcore and sick of it all, but we loved Fugazi just as much. Like that was like, so we were really becoming obsessed with Fugazi and their sound. And I remember we had a breakdown on tour and we were stranded on the side of the road. It was summertime and we did everything we could until we got a tow truck to come. We played soccer, we played football and Scott, I remember, I have photographs of it, who was sitting in the grass on the side of the highway playing his guitar. And he's like, I think I got some cool new riffs. I've been listening to this band Drive Like Jehu a lot. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, oh, okay, you know, and it's not really our thing, but whatever. And he started kind of combining what we had always done with like stuff like Drive Like Jehu and Helmet. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. I mean, we didn't end up sounding like Drive Like Jehu, but like that was what Scott was into. And that was what started to define the Snapcase sound was like him taking like, you know, what he was doing with his guitar to a different place. And um, yeah, I mean, we were a band that was like, you know, Earth Crisis and Strife were sort of more um, embedded right into like the heavy hardcore scene, maybe a little bit of the, you know, whatever you want to call it, moshcore. And we were too, but like, we were really tight with Texas is the reason and split lip. And we were really tight with lifetime and lifetime was one of our, was our first tour where we went to California. So, you know, we were again, like we're a victory band. We're playing this heavy music, you know, our crowd wants us to be heavy, but like, we don't, we don't really associate with like, we're not tough guys. We're not like, you know? Um, so I think that was, uh, kind of always an internal conflict, like as far as finding our sound and identity. And then it sort of worked out. If I'm hearing you correctly, Daryl, it's Snapcase's thing was not having a thing. Like you guys didn't define yourself by one singular thing. And you guys were so open to being like, like you said, like the difference between, you know, the cure and, and Metallica, like you took from everything and made it what you guys wanted. You know, I, I really do think so. Um, and, you know, I know, I'm going to reference your other interview with Scott from Earth Crisis again. And he was saying, you know, a lot of the hardcore purists were hating on them because they were metal. And a lot of the hardcore purists that were more into like the youth crew sound and fast beat hardcore hated us, you know, and we would constantly see this in like some of the more traditional hardcore fanzines, but we didn't care. We liked the fact that we were kind of coming up with something that was a little bit different. And, um, you know, we didn't know what it was. We didn't know. We just knew it was us. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted to ask what people's reception of you was 
because you know now things are way more open and people are just more receptive in general i think but back then definitely not so much yeah i mean it's it's tough because in a way they people were like you know underground music wasn't as accessible as it became so you know like i said when i was younger we listened to punk metal and hardcore all the same because it was all underground but then once you know it started to kind of like get finer and finer tuned in with each scene and you had to kind of like fit into a uh, like a niche and um we didn't and an earth crisis didn't you know like scott was saying you know so everyone that wanted every hardcore band to sound like wide awake and youth of today and bold forever hated this sound i think that's what kind of sparked 90s hardcore and when us earth crisis and strife all were on victory at the same time and we're new bands and we did a tour together it was sort of like the start of something new in the scene that we weren't even really aware of as it was taking place. But, you know, a couple of years later, people were asking about this a lot, a lot. you know, our three bands and, and the Victory Records and 90s Hardcore. Like, this is a whole new thing now. Big time. Because by the time I got into Hardcore in, let's say, 98, Progression Through Unlearning had already been out and you guys were it. I mean, you were, you were one of the entry points for a lot of people, myself included. We did. A, we were we were touring heavily at that time. Yeah, let's talk about progression through unlearning. Now, this is a classic album, in my opinion. I want to ask your perception of it too. But Daryl, do you know that the drum sound on this album is famous to many people? <laughs> Does Tim know that too? We do. Um, <laughs> you know, to a point where it's almost like a little bit annoying, but. <laughs> Um, and the drum sound is actually a little bit annoying too, you know. Um, but you know, we owe that a little bit to Helmet, a little bit to like what we wanted to do, and then a lot of it to Steve Evitz at Tracks East. Um, he he cranked the snare drum. He was like, "No, I'm going to tune this even higher. I want this thing to cut right through everything." Do you regret that decision, or are you okay with it? No, I don't regret it. I mean, that album sounds the way it's supposed to sound. Yes, um, I agree with you. I I absolutely love it. We were sick of our record sounding kind of flat and dull um, live. We were a very energetic, bright band. And we came and Steve said, what do you guys want to sound like on this album? And we said, we want to sound more like our live show. We want this. And so he, he pushed the tempo. He pushed the sounds. He pushed you know, my voice more than I, it had ever been pushed before, which, you know, was not easy for any of us. But Steve Evitz is a huge, huge part of that album and, and where Snapcase went from that point on. You know, the intro drum fill on Caboose is famous as well. You know, I'd say it's right up there with the quicksand drum intro for... Uh, uh, phaser, right? For Phaser, yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I don't know. But, you know, you asked my perception of progression through and learning and, you know, it, it's, tar- it's tough to have um, perspective on, on your own band when you're really close to it. But now that it's so far away and all of our records are kind of old at this point, um, I can go back and listen to our records and I understand that progression is by far the best of all of our records. I understand why it's unique. I understand why it's in a lot of ways, the most popular one. I don't understand why some people really hang on to looking glass self (laughs) over (laughs) progression, but we spent, I mean, progression through and learning was really like a snapshot of a band 
fully dedicated to their craft at that point in time. And we lived our music and writing those songs and, and making those songs and making that album. I mean, that was all any of us cared about. All of us were 100% tuned in for that record. And, um, you know, I'm always impressed with bands that are, are really hardworking. And we've toured with some of those bands. Sick of It All is one of the hardest working bands I've ever seen. Refused. Um, when they were on their game, I've you know, they were so obsessed and dedicated with getting better and better. Avail is another band that we toured with. They used to have four-hour practices like five nights a week. Wow. Wow. Um, you know, and then and then after us coming from Buffalo is every time I die. And I don't know if there's a harder working band in music right now than every time I die. Those guys are just constantly killing it. They're like amazing. Yes, they're massive. So I don't know. I really respect that and and, and progression through and learning. That was Snapcase at that point in time. That was our existence. Was that that record? I think uh, it was a huge leap forward in sound as well. Like Daryl, like you described, the tempos and and the vocals, everything was just pushed to the max. And how much of that is intervention from Steve Evitz? Did you go in there with one thing and he pushed you to take it to another place? Absolutely. You know, um, we we actually wrote a couple songs or finished a couple songs in the studio. Like I know that Zombie Prescription was a song that we we needed another song, and and we came up with that song there at Tracks East while hanging out in Jersey. We stayed there for a long time, and that was a song we put together there. And but Steve Steve is like, um, you know, I, I don't know, like I've never seen anybody work like the way he worked. Like he worked really late at night. He was there super early in the morning. It wasn't like the rock and roll world. Like this guy was like ready to go first thing in the morning. And but like this that same day, you know, even though you started at seven in the morning or whatever, at two in the morning, that guy is like listening to every single in our song. And like he's making sure there is not one bit of noise in between those guitar riffs. Like he is making sure it sounds as tight and clean as possible. And if he doesn't like it, he's either going to make you play it again or he's going to find a way to edit that noise out. Obsessive. And, you know, that's why Dillinger Escape Plan sounded the way they did. I'm sure those guys could tell you a lot about Steve Evitz, Lifetime, Dead Guy. Every Time I Die, too. Yeah, I think Earth Crisis recorded an album there. Hatebreed went there after we had recorded there. Tracks East is legendary. That was the spot. If you were a band in the mid to late 90s, that, that was where you went, period. Absolutely. So it looks like many years of touring after progression through on learning. This is where the first California Takeover tour happens as well, yes? So 95, no. So that would have been right. That would have been probably in between Looking Glass Self and Steps. Oh, okay. So that's that's earlier. I just listened to Scott from Earth Crisis podcast again, so I'm going to reference it, <laughs> reference it again because it's fresh in my brain. But I really don't remember the shows that well. I remember it more from the photos that I see of it. I never really liked the way we sounded on that original live recording. Um, so I never, I didn't listen to the album probably more than once. But that's why I was kind of happy to be able to re-record it um, when we did. But it was at the kind of peak of like, our three bands kind of like being like a changing of the guard in the hardcore scene, so to speak, you know, like before us, it was all the revelation bands. And during, you know, that probably 96, 97 era, it became like 
it was our three bands, Strife, Earth, Crisis, Snapcase. Um, Integrity was still powerful, and they had been around from before all of us, but um, 108 was killing it. Unbroken was amazing at that time. Undertow from up northwest. I mean, but the, and you know, there's many more. But this was like this was the changing of the guard. This these were the new bands, and it was really cool to be part of it. Absolutely. So, did you see even bigger audiences after progression through unlearning? Did things keep growing more and more? Um, they did, and we were never afraid to like um, you know try touring with different types of bands. So you know, we did that tour with Deftones and Quicksand. We toured canada with kind of like some ska punk bands and things like that which was really not our thing but um it was a great tour we did a tour with papa roach um we were starting to kind of like entertain the idea we did a tour of h2o and face to face which was actually not a great tour for us we had a lot of um conflict with the other bands for some weird reason it was like that was like the one of the only tours we ever had that tell us about some of the conflicts we love this kind of stuff (laughs) We had been friends with Toby from H2O for a long time, and, and he's a great guy, and, and they're all super cool guys. And But they got signed or got new management, and they shared management with Face to Face. We ended up on the tour, but we didn't share the same management. So we felt like as this tour was progressing, we were not getting treated the same way. We, we were like kind of like, you know... However they could screw us, they would screw us, we felt. Was it like pay or, you know, backroom setup or both? Um, well, no, the pay was all established before the tour, but it was more like where you played on the bill. You know, like we were promised like how many times we would play right before face-to-face, and that seemed to kind of like fade away. You know, we were like playing before both bands a lot. And we had a van breakdown, and there was a band uh, from the Midwest called Elliot. Yes, um, oh, yeah. Super amazing guys. They saved their butts. Chris from Elliot drove the Elliot van up to us and lent us to their van for a few days. And then Victory helped us get a tour bus because we sort of needed, there was a lot of really long tours. So we got this tour bus, but the bus, tour bus started to break down on the tour. So we kept showing up late to these shows. And they started to like threaten us like, oh, you guys are too late. You can't play. And we're like, well, the show didn't start. We're here. Why can't we play? You know? <laughs> You know, we'll bring our gear and we'll do all this. And so I think we played like um, Detroit and we actually showed up so late that we ended up going on after face to face. And it was like, okay, you're going to go on after the big headliner. And we killed it. We, we, we ripped Detroit apart. Like it was so good. And they fucking hated that. (laughs) And they hated that so much. And from that point on, it got worse and worse. And um, we just felt like every show, every time we showed up at the club, like no one would talk to us. They were just rude to us. There's never space on stage for our gear. You know, we didn't have anywhere to set up our merch. You know, it was like, it was like everything you could think of, you know, like any way you could slight a band would happen on that tour. And um, it just fueled us. And we got to Phoenix, Arizona and they said, no, you guys can't play. And we're like, well, we're here. Like, No, you're not playing. And so all these hardcore kids at the show in Phoenix were like, hey, you know, there's a kind of like a local hardcore show going on down the street at a Chinese restaurant. Do you guys want to play that? And we're like, really? So we we literally drove this big tour bus and parked in front of the Chinese restaurant where the local show was going on. And we played on top of the tables that they put together at the Chinese restaurant. 
<laughs> and all these kids left the, the face-to-face show to go. And it was like one of the sickest hardcore shows, you know, people stage diving off of like the countertops and stuff <laughs> like that. Like, and it was wild. It was just like a blast. And that really pissed them off. And the next show they <laughs> said, you guys are off the tour. And I remember we drove to San Diego for that show and we drove home, home from San Diego to Buffalo. <laughs> we were off the tour. Brutal. That's got to feel good though, that you're stealing people away from the face-to-face show after all this petty behavior. Yeah, no, it was really, really pissing us off. And uh, we really didn't get along with that crew at all. It's interesting to hear that this stuff happens in my eyes to like a bigger band, which I consider you. Like I've been, you know, on a much smaller scale, I've been to shows where like guys are acting too cool or like they won't talk to you. They'll only talk to certain, like all this stupid, dumb stuff that band people do. And I'm surprised to hear that this happened to you. And Snapcase. Oh, yeah. No, this kind of stuff happened a lot, you know. How is it uh, today? Like, if you ran into face-to-face today, would it be cool? Or would you just pretend you didn't see them? I would probably pretend I didn't see them. <laughs> I see. <laughs> Thank you for being honest. I appreciate that, man. <laughs> no, honestly, I'm not I'm not looking to be buddies with, with those guys. And it wasn't even so much them as it was, like, the whole package. It was, like, the management, the road crew, everyone. Like, the band had no love for us either. But, like, it was just, like, you know... It just was not a good fit that tour. Daryl, how was how was going out with Papa Roach? We've had a guest on that toured with Papa Roach, and they said they were like the nicest dudes in the world. Papa Roach was super nice. Their crowd could give a shit about us. <laughs> 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 you know, we didn't have a radio single. Yeah. Um, you know, we didn't get great reviews from the shows because, like, you know, it's not the, not um, your audience. Yeah. No, and 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 yeah, but we got along. Those guys were really cool, and and that was a weird thing about Snapcase, you know. So. We were doing warp tours and we were just learning more about our influence across the country um, with other bands and up and coming bands, you know? Um, and it just always, always, I always feel honored and it always blows me away to hear about bands that are like, Oh, I love you guys. And you're thinking like, really? You guys are like on MTV all the time. <laughs> like, you know, whether honestly like system of a down and Lincoln park and like, we would get these calls from these big management companies saying, you know, these guys want to take you on tour. They're into you guys. And, you know, but we felt like, you know, the Warp Tour and Deftones and Papa Roach, like as much as we liked being on those tours, they weren't really doing a lot for us as a band. And a lot of the our core audience was actually abandoning us. So that was another dilemma. That's a strange thing with a band is that like you either pursue that like, all right, here's a more successful way to go about getting our music to more people. But then the people that are, you know, real hardcore fans and are your core fan base are like, oh, now they're playing with these guys. And it's like I, I, there's a kind of purist mentality. Keith and I have had this conversation with several guests before, but there's a purist kind of gatekeeper mentality with hardcore that we would like to try to do away with as much as possible. <laughs> yeah, and I agree. But I will also say that my passion is still in play, is still with playing the small hardcore show. I didn't really love getting on those big production stages. I missed playing in a small, dark, sweaty club with everyone falling on top of each other. Like that is to me where it's at. I would like a little bit of production. So the sound is good and I can hear everything. But aside from that, you know, there's nothing like the energy of a true underground punk hardcore show. Right. And that's the ultimate choice. It's like you can get on these gigantic tours with these huge bands 
and you play and maybe people are into you, but maybe they're not. And like maybe the band gets pushed somewhere bigger down the road. And you're just, you know, but you're not getting that hit of an of an intimate hardcore show where everyone's going nuts and they absolutely love you. Right. And um, I think we compromised our sound a little bit during that time. You know, like, again, when you mentioned progression through and learning, I mean, that was, to me, where I think we kind of hit that sweet spot for the band. Like, that's kind of what we should sound like. And, um, you know, uh, Designs for Automotion came after out after that. And that sounds to me like a compromised version of progression through and learning, to be quite honest. Did you compromise before the album was recorded and released? Did everyone get together and say, like, all right, we're taking this thing to the next level. Let's draw this back. Let's try this different thing. Somewhat, yes. Yeah, I would say we did. And um, we know we were becoming a regular on the Warp Tour. And, you know, you know, on the Warp Tour, you know, at that time, it wasn't so much about hardcore. It was just about, like, moving the crowd, you know, and being a crowd pleaser. And, um, you know, I regret that heavily do you like anything about designs for automotion is there parts of it you like because oh no i do i like i definitely like some of those songs and the songs that i like i really do like yeah i think that album has some of your best songs and i remember a lot of hype leading up to the release of that record that was a big record i remember anticipating that coming out and and a lot of talk about it did you feel that too um i do and i remember some (laughs) close friends in the Buffalo scene saying, oh man, you guys screwed up. You know, this record just not as heavy. You know, people wanted you guys to sound heavy, you know? And I was like, ah, I don't really care, you know, but in hindsight, I kind of wish it was heavier, you know? Um, and I, I, I wish we'd, you know, hadn't kind of like compromised some of that, the heaviness. Um, what I am upset about is like, I feel like we put together a great record with end transmission and like, at that point, a lot of people kind of fell off and didn't care about us anymore. And um, in Europe, the record was really well received. And actually, our shows were getting bigger. But in the States, it was just like, you know, it was a steady decline at that point. Well, you have to take chances. And a lot of bands, that was the thing at the time, was taking a chance and trying something different. And you're on this locomotive that's gaining a lot of traction. You're on these big tours. You're playing with these big bands. I don't know. I think you, I think you have to try something different. Yeah, and so right around 2000, 2001, 2002, you know, this is, to me, like, the bands that I was starting to really love were, like, Refuse, At the Drive-In, The Blood Brothers. Like, these were groups, to me, were really kind of, like, interesting. Yep. Um, and they were heavy, but to me, I thought, like, this is where hardcore is going. But I was completely wrong. Hardcore was sort of regressing um, because Hatebreed blew up. And nothing against Hatebreed. I mean, that's that's a fantastic album. And those guys were, again, super hard workers. Um, and they earned everything they got. But, like, I was wrong. The scene wanted more Moshcore um, and did not want things to get artsier and more interesting so much. So I had the same mindset as you. I thought things were going to get more progressive and there was going to be more cave-in-type bands who were doing interesting things. But Hardcore went the complete opposite direction and it just got super tough. Yeah, and we actually played a lot of shows. It's funny you mentioned Cave, and that was another band that we we kind of played shows with quite a bit. And we are like fans of music, and I remember like that's one of the bands that instantly got like was became a regular thing that we played in the tour van. You know, and I I think like I think what bands listen to in the tour van should be its own like <laughs> fanzine or podcast yeah, or, yeah. or 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 blog or something. Because when I you know I think it would surprise a lot of people. 
you know, what, what bands were really playing a lot in there when they were on tour. You know, people would probably guess one thing and then realize it was another thing. It's always really different. We had Matt Pryor from the Get Up Kids on the show, and, you know, he was listening to a lot of acoustic Americana stuff. And he's like, that's what we were listening to in the van. And that's where that band went. So I think what you're playing and what you're listening to are often two different things. Well, you know what's crazy is the Get Up Kids are another band that we were like super friendly with <laughs> and hung out with a lot. Oh, yeah? Yeah, no, those guys were a blast. They were really cool. And um, that Midwest scene, we, we really loved that Midwest scene. You know, I think Coalesce was another band that was from like Out Their Way. And, yep. you know, um, I, I don't know. I think Snapcase was just played with everybody. Whenever, whenever you see those crazy old flyers with like the best lineup ever, Snapcase is usually on it. Yeah. Well, and some of them were right from where you guys are. So some of them were from like that New Jersey area. And I, I think Andrew from Strife mentioned that we played in Josh Grabel's basement. Yep. Um, and that was Earth Crisis, Strife, Snapcase, and Lifetime in a basement. <laughs> so <laughs> like that was nuts. And like that was like complete chaos. It was so fun. It was so crazy. Um, we also played a show, I think, in Chatham um, with, uh, I want to say it was like, mouthpiece maybe texas is the reason and donuts i think you always see that flyer everywhere and i'm like god i want to see that show and and the other one was one of the early times we went to california and and so we're uh, andrew was talking about the guy that produced the new um california takeover is aaron bruno who's the the lead from awol nation Mm -hmm. and he mentioned that a really like important show for him in, in his musical career and that like was like an influential show was a show that we played out in um, Los Angeles in probably 95 or something like that. And I think it was Undertow, Ignite and Strife and Us. And the way Aaron tells the story is he remembers that like Strife was like kind of like really becoming such a, the biggest thing in the Southern hardcore, Southern California hardcore scene. And then he said he felt bad that Snapcase was stuck in a spot where we were actually going to play after all these West Coast bands. And I honestly remember being scared, like, the crowd's going to leave. Like, we're going to go on late. No one's going to care. And that show just had energy from the start to the finish. Every single band, the crowd went bonkers. The best stage dives I've ever witnessed in my life. You know, I feel like people were doing, like, massive, like, flips like skateboard looking moves in the air like <laughs> during stage dives like it was like sick it was just so fun las palmas theater oh that's awesome so the band ends around 2000 you had your initial breakup in 2005 so what happened did we just get burned out we want to move on to different things i don't know if the year is correct but i couldn't tell you what the correct year would be i think it was a little earlier than that but i can tell you from my perspective um our drummer tim so what was happening with a band of guys that were kind of like uh, academic? Um, so our guitar player, Scott, my cousin, when he left the band, he continued on. He got a PhD, and he's a professor at Villanova now. Wow. Tim, our drummer, uh, well, Joe Smith was another guitar player in our band in the 7-inch. Um, I think he got a PhD or a law degree, and he, he works in law in Washington, D.C. Um, and then Tim, our drummer throughout all the albums, he got a PhD and um, he's like a kind of like a professor in American studies. So what was happening was I was seeing the guys in my band 
kind of move on. <laughs> and um, we were on a tour with, we had a guy in the band named Ben playing drums for a long time, Ben Lithberg. He actually was from New Zealand. And he was a super cool guy. He was a great drummer, and he was a lot of fun to be on tour with. But, you know, he wasn't a guy that I grew up with and wasn't a guy that I built the band with like Tim. Um, so there was that. And then we were on a tour in Canada and John, our guitar player who does all the backup singing. And he's sort of like the face of the band, probably along with me. He didn't do the tour. And, um, a guy named Jamie Getz that was from Philadelphia, actually, he came and played guitar on the tour. He was in a band called Lick Golden Sky at the time. And he had played with Turmoil and just another awesome guy. And these guys were all cool and awesome. But like, I just remember being on stage thinking, like, looking around, like, this isn't really Snapcase anymore. And it's becoming less and less like Snapcase. And I was like, I don't know. And and I had other opportunities to, you know, with college and, and my, my career. So, you know, I probably was the next one to kind of, like, take a step back. And that sort of was where the, the plug was kind of pulled. So did you finish college after that? What did you do? I did. I, I I finished my bachelor's degree and, and got into like an advanced master's program, which I finished in like a year and a half or something like that. And, and you know, got a job in that psych hospital, like second I graduated. Was it hard to step away into a more traditional life? No, not for me. I like to constantly learn new things. I, I like to constantly grow as a person. You know, when all you do is tour 10 months of the year, um, or not even sometimes it's just sort of like you feel like you're having the same conversations over and over again uh, with the same type of people. And a lot of people find comfort in that. Um, but that's not for me. Like I, I like to kind of like meet new people all the time and, and learn new things all the time. And I have some other passions in my life. Um, and social work was the next one for me. You know, when I was younger, it was skateboarding and BMX racing and all kinds of things, you know, but, um, the next passion I, I got into was uh, antiques and, and vintage furniture and artwork. And right now I'm at the point where like, I, I opened up an antique shop in 2006. Oh, really? In an art gallery. Yeah. And um, I did that for a while and I ended up closing the shop, but I, I, I never stopped. And I, I still probably 20 hours a week, I buy and sell rare, unusual antiques and mid-century and artwork and sculptures, you know, um, do you run it out of a sh- out of the art gallery or anything, or do you just buy and sell out of out of your house? Uh, it's all privately, you know, through connections, and it's um, you know, mostly higher end stuff, anywhere from like five hundred to like dollar to like ten thousand dollar paintings, stuff like that. So I want to make sure we talk about the new return of the California Takeover record we've got coming out. Yes, yeah. So I'm really excited about this. Um, Again, like I mentioned, I wasn't crazy about the initial recording. You know, I don't know if I even took it serious back then. It was sort of like, I don't think I realized what it would become or realized the enormity of that show kind of more historically and in the, you know, underground. Um, So I didn't take it serious when it originally took place. Um, And this time I, I, you know, it's, I did take it serious, but I didn't focus on it being recorded, but it was a lot of fun to kind of like reconnect with the earth crisis and strife guys. And, you know, it's like, we are all different now that we're kind of like in a different stage of life, but we all shared the same development and growth in the, in the mid to late nineties. And 
it's kind of like one of those bonds that, you know, it just always will be there. And every time we get together, we're going to laugh at the same shit and we're going to, we're going to propel each other's bands to play a little bit harder or, you know, push each other a little bit more, you know, like I I think Andrew said it wasn't competitive, but there is, there definitely is an underlying competitiveness of, of the whole thing. You know, you, you, you know, you see one of those guys get off stage and like, they just tore it up. You don't want to like <laughs> have like an easygoing night. You got to tear it up too. You know, you got to kind of push it. Exactly. Whether you're aware of it or not, there is a degree of competition. Sure. So the record comes out November 15th on War Records and folks, it's all sold out. But as I mentioned in the first segment, we have one to give away. So check in after the interview and we'll tell you how to get your hands on it. It should be more because I know Andrew said he's got a hundred copies of the records to send us, and our the five of us don't need a hundred copies. So <laughs> <laughs> I think they're either going to go on our web store or we'll, we'll bring them to the next show we play, which is actually the next California Takeover shows. Those are going to be in Philadelphia, correct? Um, yeah, so they're in, in May of twenty two, and um, the first night is a Friday night in Buffalo, and then uh, a Saturday and Sunday night in Philadelphia. Nice. That Buffalo show, I bet, is going to be something. Hometown show. Yeah, that should be a lot of fun. It always is. Yeah, so folks, the record is out there. There'll there'll be some for sale. So track it down. Get your hands on it. And if you don't, there's always streaming services. You can hear the songs. You want to do that. How do you look back on the legacy of the band and the music now? I mean, obviously, you're still playing. And that's great because, you know, newer people get to see you who maybe didn't catch it back in the day. But... I think your influence goes pretty far. There are newer hardcore bands who sound just like you, and they're awesome, but but they sound like Snapcase. Do you ever hear this stuff, and you're like, hey, look at that? I hear it because people will say what you just said. You need to listen to this band. They sound like, you know, <laughs> a little bit like you guys, you know? And and I, I again, I always feel super honored to hear that. And, um, you know, it, it's a cool thing, and... Uh, you know, bands, young bands always say, you know, what do we do? What should we do as a band? Or how do we get big? And I, and, you know, my thought is always like, well, don't focus on getting big. Focus on like being you and being unique and putting like your heart into it and being honest with the lyrics, being honest with the music. And, you know, that's, that's where you got to start. But, you know, when you're doing it, you, you don't always know, you never know, like, what, what is this going to mean to anybody in the future? Um, so. The fact that, like, I mean, I I turned 50 years old this year. Like, holy shit, you know, like, and we're still going to be playing shows. Like, I would have never thought anything like that. Like, you know, of course, when you're younger, you think 50 is, like, ancient. But um, if you could stay in shape, you could still do this stuff. And um, I need it. You know, I can't just work a corporate job and go to sleep (laughs) at night. You know, I need to get up there and scream my head off and, like, you know, jump in some crowds once in a while. You know, it's, it's super important. And uh, also, you know, the message of the band is important to me. You know, um, you know, Snapcase has never been the most obvious band message-wise, lyric-wise. You know, we don't come across as this heavy-hitting political band. We don't come across as, like, the in-your-face, straight-edge band. But, like, when I look back at this band and legacy of the band, like you asked, I remember how many people came up to me after a show or wrote a letter back before email or wrote emails to say, I felt alienated by straight edge bands, but like you guys propelled me to kind of get over an addiction. You guys made me believe in myself. You guys like opened a window that made me think differently. 
about myself or what I could possibly become. And, you know, so the message is not so obvious, you know, but it's important nonetheless. And it's what we are and and it's, it's the honest part of our band. You know, we weren't trying too hard to be something else, trying to be something communal. We were just trying to, you know, push what we were going through as individuals at the time. I think that's incredible. That's got to be the best thing in the world to hear that your music had an effect on somebody and helped them through a difficult part of of their lives. It's huge. It's absolutely huge. It's the most important thing. Yeah. And I think that was an excellent summation of what foundation or what Snapcase's real foundation is. Like that that just hit me really hard. That was a that was beautifully said, Daryl. Well, I feel lucky to have said it that way because <laughs> I told my wife, I hope I have a good speaking night tonight because you know, sometimes you just sound so stupid, you know. No, you're you're right on point, so don't worry about that. And yeah, you know, Snapcase, I never really thought about like Snapcase is a X band. Snapcase is a straight edge band. Like Snapcase talks about this. I always just thought energy, high energy and fucking awesome grooves and killer yeah. shows. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. So, oh, speaking about your influence again, the Hoobastank song, Crawling in the Dark. I'm sorry, that's a Snapcase breakdown. I don't know that one, no. Listen to that song. That's a Snapcase breakdown. I swear to God, they have to have heard you and just taken a breakdown. It's a Snapcase breakdown. Check it out after this. You'll see that I'm right. (laughs) What, What is it called again? Crawling in the Dark. Crawling in the Dark. All right, I will definitely check it out. You know, people keep telling me, you know, Turnstile is like Snapcase now, but like times 10, you know, and and I agree. They are definitely times 10. I mean, they're like, they're way better, way more realized band than we ever were. And I think they're killing it. But I remember, so we played the Every Time I Die show in Buffalo, the Christmas show that they do every year. It's massive. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there was like four or 5,000 people at that thing. Whoa. And, um, Turnstile was on it, and I remember running into those guys in the hallway and saying, "Hey, I love you guys. You're awesome. I just want to introduce myself." And like somebody else was standing next to me, and they're like, "You know these guys fucking know who you are, right?" I'm like, "I have no idea. Like, <laughs> I don't know. Like, do they? I mean, these guys are fucking huge. You know, they're a cool band." So I love that the meeting of influences and that type of thing, and that's the move. You don't want to be like, "Hey, I'm Daryl from Snapcase. You probably know me already." Like. <laughs> Well, I really appreciate this, guys. Thank yes. you so much. My day turned around. It feels good now. I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad that we could have an effect on you because your music has had such an effect on us. And Daryl, we really appreciate everything that you and Snapcase have done and are doing. I hope I get to see you on the stage again soon. And listen, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. You got it. And and uh Best of luck to you guys. What you have going on with the New Scene podcast is great, and you're doing a great job, so keep it up. There you have it, folks. Daryl Taberski. That was an excellent conversation. He was so forthcoming. He talked about past beefs. He talked about his feeling on some of the records. And Snapcase is just legendary. It was it was really nice to talk to him. I, I love when people come on and they're so they're far enough removed from 
the popularity of the band where they go, you know what? I can speak candidly about this now. <laughs> like, yeah, that that type of honesty is is precisely what we're looking for when we we talk to guests is that we want their real honest opinion. Like, you know, when he started talking about, all right, well, progression through unlearning is our best record. And when we made designs for automation, you know, he really talked about like, well, we kind of jettisoned some of the heavier stuff in pursuit of something that would be a little bit more palatable, something that would be a little bit more well-received. And, you know, the people that were like the diehard fans were like, ah, you fucked up. (laughs) Like, yeah. However, what were we talking about before this designs for automotion has our favorite song on there ambition now fuck yeah dude dude that is such a killer track like i love that i there's a lot of good songs on that album but i really love that album especially for that track yeah that track that track alone is worth the price of buying a record i'm like almost excited for the show to end just so i can go listen to it now (laughs) i already have it queued up i already have it queued up on my phone so as soon as i hang up i'm gonna be like yes (laughs) yeah and it's one of the few songs i can actually play so i i love it for that too Oh, I don't know how to play it. I've never sat down and figured it out. Yeah, I'll show it to you if we're ever in the same room again. Do what I did before, which is just record yourself playing it and then send it to me. Send me like the little, uh, like you know, thirty seconds, thirty second video. I will. It's it's real easy to play. It's such a good song. But yeah, Snapcase. I love the band. Talking to Daryl was great. Thank you, Daryl. And speaking of Daryl, and Snapcase, and Strife, and Earth Crisis. And the California Takeover. (laughs) (laughs) We have a Return of the California Takeover record to give away. And here's how you can get it. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Write a nice review. And only do it if you really like the show, you know? Like, if you don't like us, but you hate listen to us, you don't have to do it. Give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Write a nice review. Post it on an Instagram story and tag us. We'll pick a lucky winner and we'll ship the record right to you. What do you think about that, Tommy? You just sparked something in my brain that I've never thought of. What? Somebody potentially could hate listen to us. <laughs> like, <laughs> like they listen to it and just the whole time they're just critiquing. Listen to this fucking idiot. Like, <laughs> Well, I'm just thinking about Howard Stern back in the day. Like oh, people yeah. couldn't stand him apparently, but they listened to him for eight hours a day. Oh my God, yeah. I don't think people do that with podcasts, especially ours, you know? I, f- I think if people don't like a podcast, they just tune out pretty quick. Yeah, there's a, there's a six dozen other ones they can go and hate those too. So yeah, if you want the record, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, post an Instagram story, tag us, new scene pod, and we'll pick a lucky winner to get the record. There you go. There's your chance to get the record. What do you think of that, Tommy? I pick Vadim Tabor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we're we're going to pick, I want to pick someone we don't know. Oh, know? of course. Yeah. Uh, no, I was teasing. Yeah. We got to spread this stuff around. So yeah, don't worry, folks. There won't be any insider trading. <laughs> All right. So uh, there was a startling revelation uh, between segments. Oh, yeah. Tommy cried while watching a movie. Yeah. Now, Tommy, tell the people what happened. So my daughters went up to their grandparents' house on Saturday to go do like a Christmas light show thing with their grandmother. And I was home and I, I rarely get to watch TV by myself. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to put on a movie. And I have a bunch of DVDs downstairs. So I grabbed one of them that I was just like, I haven't seen this in forever. Let me put it on. Uh, it's Sling Blade um, with Billy Bob Thornton and John Ritter. This, the little boy's name is Lucas Black. It's, it's a beautiful movie. If you've never seen it before, basic idea is – 
gentleman's in a, uh, a mental institution. He gets released. Um, he is in there in the first place because he killed his mother and her boyfriend because, uh, well, long story short, he ends up getting out, befriends this little boy and his mother. She has an abusive boyfriend. He's a live-in boyfriend uh, played by Dwight Yoakam, the country singer. Never a more fucking hateable person in the entire world. He is I, – I watched Dwight Yoakam play country music after I watched that movie just to see like, wow, he's a really good musician. He is such a good actor in that movie. I can't believe he didn't win an award for it. Like he is – he you, you want to murder him. Like it, it's awful. Um, but there's a scene in the movie where uh, the main character, Carl, is explaining to John Ritter who works with – uh, the little boy's mother at the supermarket. And he's like, you know, this little boy, he lives inside of his own heart and that's an awful big place to live. And what Carl does is he makes the sacrifice of, he knows that this family will never be happy with Dwight Yoakam um, being around. So right. he ch- makes the choice to give up his freedom and go back to the mental hospital and murders Dwight Yoakam. Uh, I just thought it was such a beautiful moment of like in pursuit of love and pursuit of this kind of thrown together family, this, you know, uh, mentally deficient guy makes this ultimate choice to do what's right and do what he thinks is, is the best move in that moment. And uh, I really, it, it was just moving. And I, I, I think about people making sacrifices on a daily basis that are, you know, minimal like that, but giving up your personal freedom for the rest of your life to make sure that a woman and her son are happy. Just really kind of thought it it just struck me in a very strange way. And I I was just, I wasn't like sobbing, but I shed a few tears and I was, I haven't cried at a movie. I couldn't think of the last time I've cried at watching a movie and that really got me upset. So yeah, I shared that with Keith and he was like on the show, go. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it probably hit home, right? Oh yeah, for sure. Because of the whole thing, you know, kid without a father, weird dad stuff. Yeah, we like stepfather. I don't necessarily get along with really well. Right, um, and then right. you know, it was it does hit close to home. But I think also the part that really kind of hit me is that Carl is this ideal. Like he does what's right because it's right, not because he think uh, he thinks other people will judge him and be like, "Wow, he did the right thing." He just he acts based on his own instinct and it's it's really uh it's neat to see someone what billy bob thornton wrote directed and starred in that movie so if you ever want to tease him about his mute like his choices and things he's acted in or things he said or whatever go rewatch that movie and rethink everything you've ever thought about him because he that was it, the movie that broke him it started a, it was a short film first and then it yes, was a full-length yeah. feature He's a phenomenal actor. Did you ever watch season one of Fargo, the television show? I have not. He is phenomenal in that. Are you surprised by that, Keith? No. <laughs> no. no. I was surprised the show was that good. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it's an incredible show, but he is, he's great. He's great. What is, is that, uh, is that on FX? Yes. Okay. I have that. I can watch that. Watch it. You will not regret it. Yeah, it's I, it's amazing. I actually, uh, I I told my mother this weekend, uh, you know, you need to go watch True Detective. She watched the whole uh, first season in one day. Oh, well, not one, but like overnight, and then the next morning. Yeah, and she was like, 
wow, that did not disappoint. She's like, there was a lot of things in there. I didn't understand what was happening. She goes, but I loved it. I really liked that. That was a great, she goes, it felt like an extra long movie. I was like, yep. yeah, yeah. It's one of the best TV, modern TV shows by a long shot. Yeah. And you know what, Tommy, I, I won't make fun of you for crying at the movie because movies are one of the only things that can make me cry. And even if it's not that sad, I could shed tears. I cry, like I'll, I'll go on a YouTube spree I'll watch the scene in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles where uh, where John Candy tells Steve Martin that he's homeless and there's that whole revelation. Oh, yeah. And th- then he brings him home. That does it. Watching the ending of Halloween, the original one, makes me really emotional for some reason. I'm not sure why. Anything. I watched the trailer for Captain Fantastic after we had Steve Austin on, and I was almost in tears the entire trailer. Just movies make me very emotional. I think it comes down to like what you kind of said before. There's something that's relatable in a movie that you can kind of like pick out parts of your life that kind of fit in there or even situations you've been in. And then it's a weird kind of mental trickery. We do. We almost imagine, I I, I don't know if you do this, but I imagine myself in that movie or I imagine myself in that type of scenario. Mm -hmm. And I think how it would affect me. And then I get upset. (laughs) I think I have such a pressure cooker of buried emotions going on Uh, that at this point in my life, there's just so many memories tied up in these movies that just watching the scenes brings it right to the surface. It's like that type of deal. There was a a short film that I showed to uh, my writing class when I first started teaching. Uh, It was a Pixar short, and it was about these birds on a wire and it's about one bird that gets bullied by the other birds and kind of has a laugh when he gets the, le- you know, he, he kind of tricks them and gets the last laugh. It really made me upset. And some of the kids were like, we turned the lights back on. They were like, are you t- crying? I'm like, no, no, <laughs> right, right on your papers. Don't look at me. <laughs> now, folks, there's a lot of Tommy news this week. He was also <laughs> hit by a man on a motorcycle. Tommy, <laughs> tell the people what happened. All right, so I'm making a left that's a really difficult left across two lanes. So I pulled out to kind of see um, down the left-hand side. I could see the right-hand side really clearly, but as I'm looking out the right-hand side, I feel my car get bumped. And I'm not the way you normally get bumped when you get rear-ended, like your body would shake from front to back. It shook from side to side. So it was like, imagine my shoulders kind of tipping to one side, right? And I'm like, what the fuck was that? That was weird. And I look out the left-hand side. I don't see anything. And then I suddenly see a gentleman with a denim jacket stand up and then pick up a motorcycle. And I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck just happened? What is happening right now? And the guy's pants are shredded on the side because he like laid the bike down. So he slid across the pavement for a while. His bike came to a stop at my front, uh, my driver's side front tire and left like a little, you know, like the rubber from his tire got on my hubcap and he told me in the in the 30 second or 45 second conversation we had he asked me three or four times please do not call the police <laughs> he actually his exact words don't call the cops i was like well there's really no damage and he like scraped it with his thumb he's like yeah that rubber will come right off you're good right and i'm like yeah we're good are you good i'm looking at his jeans they're fucking shredded and he's like nah i'm good and he kicked his leg over the motorcycle to get back on it and i saw the back of his jacket and it said pagan motorcycle club and i was like you know what sir you have a great day you can drive wherever you'd like right now yeah. Bye. 
You know what, sir? There is damage. Don't worry about it. I'll pay for it with my own money. Uh, we're good. You're good. Everything's good. Okay, bye. But I lived, I had to call people like after I was if right after it happened because it, it was like uh, I don't know if you've ever had those moments right after an accident. You kind of like are almost like shaky, like it doesn't yep. feel real. Yep. And I had to call Kelly on my phone. I was like, I you know, luckily enough, I have everything on my dash, so I just like pressed call Kelly cell and I was like you won't believe what just happened and she's like how the fuck does this stuff always happen to you I'm like it, I, I don't know but it, <laughs> it, 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 the guy said he hit gravel he put the bike down and it hit the it hit the front of my car at the tire and she's like is your tire damaged and I'm like well it still has air in it like the warning didn't go off that my tires are low and she's like Jesus Christ why do you get into this I'm like I didn't do anything like it just I was trying to make a left-hand turn I didn't do anything wrong Tommy's getting into a lot of trouble down there in Bucks County and Yo. we are we're gonna have to send some folks down there to check in on him I'm here for it let's go <laughs> <laughs> well folks this was a really fun episode so make sure you send in those reviews and tag us so you can get this record make sure you follow me on twitch at twitch.tv slash the new scene the new scene is my username so if you're on twitch give me a follow tommy will be on there too we're going to be doing guest interviews on there at some point but for now until i figure this thing out you can watch me play video games and we can hang out you know talk about the show talk about life whatever you want it's all gravy baby but uh that's it for this one we're back next week so thanks everybody for listening and until next time